Thank you for joining us today on a virtual view. Today, I'm joined by Katie Ravega, a healthcare attorney at Corals and Brady who works in telehealth. Katie, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, Danielle, thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be yeah. here. Yeah, we're excited. So could you tell me a little bit about yourself? Yeah, thanks for asking. I grew up in a small town in southern Indiana, uh, so small that I went to a rural grade school that had about 50 students total for grades <laughs> first through eight. Yeah, um, we, we got to know each other real well. Um, oh, sure. <laughs> yeah, and then later on, I went to law school at Georgetown in Washington, D.C. I practiced at Quarles and Brady in Phoenix for about 10 years. Then I went in-house as an attorney and chief compliance officer for a venture capital-funded app company that provided access to, among other things, pharmacy and telehealth services. I came to the firm again, yeah, a few years ago, based in our Indianapolis office now, and I head our telehealth team nationally. It's pretty good. That's awesome. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. I'm pretty lucky. I've had a good path. You know, when I'm not working, I like to do a lot of other things. I like to try new things. I garden, I hike, I box, love music. You box? Yeah, I love boxing. Not not people, not people, just (laughs) equipment. Only equipment. I always oh, have to well, get on your bad side. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, but I, I do I do like that you have a perspective of somebody who does come from a small town because uh, mm-hmm. we work a lot in rural communities. So mm-hmm. I think that brings a, a unique perspective to uh, the work that we do. I think so, too. So usually when I talk to folks about telehealth, they're coming from either a standpoint of practicing, or uh, sometimes we have folks who are more on the legislative end, but it's rare I get to chat with somebody who is involved with healthcare from the legal side. So so how did you get involved in that? Well, health law has been the main focus of my career. Many people on our team do have backgrounds as healthcare providers. They were pharmacists, nurses, physical therapists, EMTs, all sorts of stuff before they became lawyers, you know, but not me. I've been an attorney for almost 20 years now. Before law school, I managed a federal grant program for Valparaiso University and include this HUD project that we use to help create volunteer-driven health clinics. This was before the Affordable Care Act, before Medicaid expansion, um, and it was up in Northwest Indiana, and it was called Hilltop House. Now, mm-hmm. by the way, um, that is known as HealthLink, and mm-hmm. it's in you know, many counties in Northwest Indiana. I had nothing to do with that part. I just was there when it started. And then I left and went to law school. Um, But that was kind of my first exposure to healthcare from the regulatory and policy side, because you saw sort of a community of people coming together, trying to find a way to address an obvious gap for folks who worked, couldn't afford insurance. We started this volunteer driven healthcare clinic and it's turned into, you know, a steady and a good service provider that's still here active in the state all these years later. That was in the early 2000s. So it's been a while. That's, that's so cool. That's what first interested me. Yeah. To get a little bit more specific. So you work mm-hmm. in telehealth now, right? Mm-hmm. You, that's that's one of your areas of interest. So is that something where that was always of interest to you? You know, it has been. I mentioned I grew up in a very rural area. Right. Um, yeah. And I regularly saw how limited access to healthcare providers affects people's lives, as well as how, you know, people get uncomfortable with that kind of system sometimes. You don't mm-hmm. speak the jargon. You're not used to maybe going to large buildings or you're intimidated by the, you know, sort of big hospital system campuses and things like that. Oh, for sure. Um, yeah. So it's a barrier. Even just to tell you how rural <laughs> an ambulance would come to town, the town was so small, people would go stand on the road to flag them down. Because otherwise, the poor ambulance drivers are going door to door, describing something from the call, trying to figure out where they're supposed to be. 
Right. Well, and you say that's not related to telehealth, but it really is because it shows like that's why telehealth is important because otherwise you're sending ambulances out there to go door to door. But many people around the around the U.S., not just Indiana, but around the U.S. live in towns like that or Mm -hmm. areas like that, you know, because the country is large. And so for sure. And even sometimes in an emergency, you know, we'd have issues because the closest place that had healthcare providers was 20 miles away, but it was in a different county. And so county level services like 911 and things like that are sending it from farther than the closest because the closest was across the county line. So there's just all those kinds of issues that affect the perception people have of how available resources are for them and how available healthcare is and what kinds of barriers they have. So because of that, people put off getting care that they needed, skip appointments because of transportation, just avoid healthcare as a whole because it seemed foreign or inaccessible. I have always felt like telehealth is one of our best tools for confronting those kinds of challenges, whether you're talking about patients in rural areas or urban areas, because they have some of the same challenges. Actually, people don't necessarily perceive it that way, but but they do. It also has opportunities, right, to improve health equity and access in so many different kinds of circumstances. So not just the rural one I happen to experience first, but, you know, across the board, I think telehealth is just a game changer. I know this is going to be a really big question, but uh, what challenges is telehealth facing from a legal perspective right now? That is an interesting question. I could think of many. So, you know, for the sake of time (laughs) and the interest of people who might listen to this and have something to do and not wanting them to fall asleep, I would say I'm (laughs) limited to two. Um, (laughs) Okay. So one is, I'll give some context before I say it, but at the beginning of the pandemic, in the public health emergency, regulators around the country were very quick to identify and eliminate barriers. The cross-state licensure requirements, adjustments to scope of practice, restrictions on effective modalities. We know they're effective, but they were prohibited, things like that, right? No one needed mountains of data to identify those things. Nobody said, well, we have to do a six-month study, everybody sit tight, and we'll get back to you. No, because everybody knows what's in the way. (laughs) I think that that is sort of highlights the challenges that something like telehealth faces and a lot of different kinds of healthcare innovation similarly Mm -hmm. face. And so now with that emergency over, a significant challenge that telehealth providers of all sorts are still encountering is understanding what they can do where they can do it and how things are changing and how to stay on top of that. Because the legislature is constantly tweaked and then there are lots of competing views, right, about whether all those permissions that were available during the pandemic, they allowed telehealth to expand so much and people now are trying to figure out an equilibrium. Did we go too far or should Mm -hmm. this be the norm, right? Like everybody's asking those questions and coming up with different answers right now. So that, I think, is actually a challenge. Oh, I I 100% agree. And I can say from uh, my perspective as somebody who provides a lot of telehealth technical assistance, Mm -hmm. the questions we're getting from providers, from patients, from health systems, from everyone, like, is this allowed? And we're like, we don't know right now. Yeah. And you just have to manage it. And it's always, you know, going to depend where is your patient? Where are you? What kind of provider are you? What service are you doing? all those little bits, and it really does vary. The second thing I would say that's a real challenge relates to payment. Not so much the regulatory requirements, but a lot of healthcare businesses that provide care by telehealth during the pandemic have stopped offering it, or they're evaluating whether to stop offering it. And this is often about the finances, because if you don't know if you're gonna get reimbursed or what amount of reimbursement you're gonna get, it can be difficult to 
consider whether you should keep providing this service, no matter how much you believe in the importance of it, right? Because you've got to keep the doors open. You know, there are laws that require, people call them parity laws. And most states have coverage parity laws that require coverage if you are, for insurance purposes, if you are seeing someone in person versus if you see them telehealth, that's fine. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't guarantee you're going to get the same payment. Yeah. Payment parity is something else. So, you know, and there are some states that have that, but they don't all. And then the other thing is, of course, Medicare and Medicaid payments. So some of the challenges for telehealth then are sort of at the macro level, these sort of systemic legal policy challenges. But then you also have these micro level issues, specific provider level, can I do this or not? And then assessments about the services and whether you can afford to keep providing them. So it's multifaceted for sure. No, I 100% agree. And I think a lot of these issues they're not being resolved is the problem. They're being kicked down the road. Mm -hmm. Like you mentioned payment parity. I think the only state in the UMTRC's four state region that we cover, um, the Ohio, Illinois, Michigan, and Indiana, the only one that does have payment parity is Illinois. And even that's not forever. It's through the end of, I believe, 2027. Mm -hmm. So we have all of these things where we're like, we saw that this worked well. We want to continue it. We're not going to say this is allowed now. We're going to say this is allowed through the end of next year or through the end of 2025. So we've seen that a lot in these issues that you're talking about because people don't want to invest their time, don't want to invest their resources in something where it's not a sure thing, where this might just last for another year. This might be allowed for another year, another two years. You don't want to invest in something that's not going to be an available care modality five years down the road, you know? Well, of course, because the technology is expensive, keeping it up to date is expensive. Developing mm -hmm. your compliance program to match your technology and your services is an investment. It, even if it's yeah. staff you already have doing it, they're putting their effort into that instead of something else. So mm -hmm. it's, you know, or maybe you have to hire people who are going to do that specific service. And if you think you can only do it for a year, you know, do you do that or not? And so there's definitely a lot of opportunity lost because of the lack of certainty. And during the pandemic, it was our only option in a lot of mm -hmm. cases. Like, we don't want to go outside, so we're going to make this work. But now there are other options. Mm -hmm. We can go outside, so we don't necessarily have to make this work. And if it's too complicated, it's not getting done. And I think that's such a shame. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how that evolves. And I think the state legislatures are going to come up with solutions. Mm -hmm. But I think they're all going to have different approaches, which yeah. in some in some cases will be good because we'll find some that are really effective and then maybe later the other states will duplicate them. But it's going to mm -hmm. take some time. Oh, for sure. So bringing it down a little bit from that huge macro level of what are the giant <laughs> challenges that telehealth yeah. is facing, we could talk about that all day. So mm -hmm. do you think different provider types are having uh, individual challenges that are that are unique to their specific kind of practice they're doing absolutely um that's the <laughs> more that, big questions <laughs> that's the micro part well it's a really interesting this is one of those things and i'll try not to be too nerdy about it but from an academic <laughs> and legal perspective like it's super fascinating right because i agree yeah you know but it's also actually not fascinating and really frustrating if you're a healthcare provider or a patient which is, right. you know, really where the rub comes in. Sometimes the vagueness of regulatory requirements in general re contributes to that because there will be, um, you know, say somebody's in Indiana or Ohio and they want to provide a service that one state requires a license for and the other one doesn't. Mm -hmm. And people have questions about things like that. Um, that comes up sometimes with folks like genetic counselors or, you know, different things, even dietitians sometimes and all that. So aside from that ubiquitous, even like cross-state licensure issue, 
The different provider types have different scopes of practice, supervision requirements, documentation requirements, prescribing authority, that's a big mm-hmm. one, and even titles across state lines. All the different levels of social workers in their scope of practice, and if they can do this here, what does it mean in this other state that doesn't have that category? Advanced nurse practitioners run into the same thing. So when you're to asking about challenges, managing all of that for your telehealth program can require adjustments and planning. And if you're designing, you know, if you've designed your program around nurse practitioner requirements, and then you start adding in physician assistants because you have an opportunity to hire people who can help you serve more patients, and they're going to do nearly the same thing, their requirements are different, you know, which is a challenge when you're trying to manage right. a program that way. Right. And then you mentioned practicing across state lines where mm-hmm. we're like, oh, we have the ability to provide services outside of what we usually would to folks farther away. But what's legal and allowed in one state isn't legal and allowed a couple miles away in yes. the state next to it or reimbursable or the accepted practice or whatever. So yeah. telehealth is great for increasing reach, but it's also so complicated when we deal with cross-state licensure. Yeah, it is. It, or just the practice in general, making sure you're staying in your scope of practice. Right. And that you've created a valid relationship. It might be different requirements in that state. And speaking of ways the states are innovating, some of the states, not in our four region, Florida is an example, but there are some others that have shifted from the practitioner-specific licensure to creating a statewide telehealth registration. So instead of, if you're a nurse practitioner, for example, you may be able to get a state telehealth registration more quickly than a nurse practitioner license. And if you meet all the other requirements, then you can do telehealth in Florida without having to get a nurse practitioner license or doctor. I mean, the list of practitioner types who qualify for that is incredibly long. Audiologists, social workers, like it's really long um, because they really thought it through. And I think if we have states continuing to innovate and try to find things like that, Maybe some of the other states will see that working and say, hey, maybe this will help us meet shortages of specialists, expand access to behavioral health care, help us continue to follow up with folks in our rural areas who don't have the ability to drive three hours to the medical center for, you know, a monthly checkup. So, you know, all Mm -hmm. those kinds of things, I think it will help. That's that kind of solution as states find them. Hopefully they get duplicated. That's that's what we'd really like to see. Yeah. No, but we're definitely very much in that transitory period right now where people are like, okay, how, what do we do now? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. That's, I agree. And I think it has to be very difficult to be a provider in that situation. And the problem is the repercussions for being wrong are so severe. Like even, even on like the, the less severe end, you're not getting paid for your work. Mm-hmm. And on the more severe end, you're going to get in legal trouble. So yes. Yeah, it's something where no matter if, if something is going wrong, like that's that's a problem. Yeah, it's, it's important to understand what the requirements are. And if you are taking a risk, doing it in a very sensible way so that you're mitigating the risk the best you can and just doing it, you know, with your eyes wide open so that you're at least aware of the context that you're operating in. Mm-hmm. But it's definitely a challenge for providers while the system around them is shifting in ways that they can't control. So to narrow the scope just a little bit more, mm-hmm. so uh, let's talk about uh, prescribing via telehealth, because I know this is something that you know a lot about. So what does that look like from a legal perspective right now? Sure. I've been doing pharmacy for a long time, and I'll tell you, telehealth prescribing is really its own animal because of the way it's regulated. Fundamentally, mm-hmm. no matter what kind of prescription it is, a pharmacy cannot fill an invalid prescription. So historically, concerns around telehealth prescribing stem from concerns about whether the prescriptions are valid. 
mm-hmm. coming out of the visits. And it's important to the prescribers too, because your your licensure and your medical board, you you can't be you know issuing prescriptions that aren't valid either. So it's it's a concern from both perspectives. It became an going way back. That's how old I am. This became a <laughs> significant issue in the late '90s, right? Because people started selling drugs over the internet. Everybody laughs, and I'm like, but it was real, like that. You know, that's really what happened. And allowing access to prescription medication on the basis of relatively simplistic forms. And so right. the word questionnaire started creeping into the law, right? Because people are like, oh, you can't do it based on a questionnaire. And so, but now the technology in the world are so completely different. Mm-hmm. Um, but some of that 30, 35 year old fear, right? Is still behind certain laws and perspectives that's impeding legitimate care, right? especially asynchronous care. And it also is affecting prescribing and, and prescriptions still. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's just one observation, but there's other ways to look at it. Many states define internet pharmacy or internet prescription, and some form of the language in those laws can be read in ways that scoops up telehealth prescriptions. Like here in Indiana, we have a definition for internet practice, you know, and people will call me sometimes and say, does this mean, does this apply to telehealth prescriptions? Is a telehealth prescription an internet prescription? So it's just because the way it's worded and even if that's not the intent. So that can be another challenge for prescriptions aside from that valid relationship issue. I thought it might be helpful if I talk a little bit about creating valid relationships in telehealth. Oh yeah, for sure. Okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm always interested in learning more about telehealth. Go for it. Let me know. So when you're talking about the legal aspect of it, whether you have a legitimate prescriber-patient relationship, whether that is created in that encounter, is primarily a state law issue. Um, right. Governed primarily by, you know, if it's doctors, then the medical board or nurses, that you know, whatever board governs the provider. Many states, because of telehealth requirements now, have outlined sort of what a telehealth visit has to include in order to ensure you're creating that valid relationship. And there's lots of ways. You could have had a prior in-person visit. They could have been referred to you by somebody. Depending on the kind of model and telehealth program you have, you may have never seen them in person. And you're Mm -hmm. just encountering them via telehealth first and maybe the only way you're going to ever encounter them. So in the context of that, assuming you haven't had a prior relationship, the typical requirements will include things like obtaining the patient's informed consent, which you also do for in-person visits, right? Creating a medical record for the person or updating their existing record. You do that in person too. And then you gather information from the patient. And that is where people run into problems sometimes in some states because they'll say, well, what type of modality do you have to use to account, you know, to establish that relationship? Does it have to be real time, audio, video, you know, like what we're doing right here? Or can it be asynchronous? What else can we do to get that going? Many states will say that the encounter can be any modality that the provider would like to use as long as it meets the standard of care. So if you discover a condition during the visit that you have to refer somebody for an in-person visit, I mean, you've got to do that because you have the obligation to meet the standard of care for their condition. But it's the best option to keep that open on the modality because it lets the provider control that, right, Mm -hmm. and the patient and make sure that they're doing it in ways that are working for them. Maybe the patient's more likely to show up if it's asynchronous. And they'll respond to texts and they will call you back, but maybe they're not going to come to the office. There's a bunch of different issues with that, right? So when Mm -hmm. somebody prescribes, based on that kind of encounter, it's important that those types of requirements have been met because that's how you know your prescription is going to be viewed as valid if it's ever challenged. And that's important for the pharmacy that dispenses it because the pharmacy's got to be filling valid prescriptions. So, you know, when you talk about that modality piece and this questionnaire word and the late 90s and those forms, the other Uh thing that still comes up 
I don't think in any of our sort of regional states here, but there are several out west that still use that kind of language in the law, and they'll say, hey, you can't use a questionnaire if you're going to prescribe. Well, what most people use today, if they're not, if they're doing an asynchronous encounter, is a sophisticated diagnostic tool. I'm going to say that word again. It's a diagnostic <laughs> tool. Um, and it's gathering a lot of detailed information with decision trees and algorithms and hard stops built into the software that in many cases are probably more thorough than what you might gather in an in-person conversation. Right? Mm-hmm. And it's because it's it's standardized and, and it's been vetted heavily and really well thought out. And in most of the places that is acceptable to the medical boards and establishes that relationship. And assuming it's appropriate for the condition and again, you know, within the standard of care. So then you end up with valid prescriptions because you have all this information, you have consent, you've complied with all these requirements. So, but that, that is what makes it a little bit different for sure is, is making sure you've checked all these boxes so that your prescriptions are going to be viewed as valid prescribing. So when we talk about controlled substances, like for example, I'm on ADHD medication and I have to go to an in-person appointment once every three or six months, I forget which, but I have to see my provider. I can't just see them over telehealth to get that prescription, or at least I couldn't prior to the pandemic. Mm -hmm. So when we bring controlled substances into the conversation, other complications does that that bring up? Well, you gave a great example. The in-person, you know, visit is part of the challenge with controlled substance prescribing for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, during the pandemic, it was waived. DEA released a statement, one of those regulatory actions right at the beginning that nobody had to doubt. You know, they said, okay, we're going to let this go and you can, you can, you know, do your treatments. Your doctor knows you. It's not like they would doubt that you have the condition you're getting the medication for. Mm-hmm. You're not diverting it. You're, you know, they know you, but they can keep prescribing the medication without having to see you. That stems from a specific law called the Ryan Hate Act. Everybody, I think, in telehealth has heard of this thing in one way or another. But the reasoning for some of those requirements, right, are still partially rooted in the Internet and technology in the late 90s and early 2000s. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it is about making sure the prescriptions for controlled substances are valid, that there's a medical need, a legitimate patient prescriber relationship. Now, because of the way that prescribing occurred during the pandemic, people have learned what the impact of that, or at least gotten some insight into what the impact of that may actually be. And I think folks are going to be studying that data for years and years. There's going to be Mm -hmm. a lot of great papers about it eventually, I bet. Looking forward to it. (laughs) Me too. You know, but now we know for behavioral health, chronic conditions, lots of other things, right? Currently, DEA is in the process of creating new rules. The waiver is still in place. It's going to end early November this year. So a few more months, but not that much longer. DEA actually has some listening sessions planned for this September, which is going to be live streamed. I think you'll be able to watch it if you want to watch it. They are going to let people come and talk to them and just listen to reasons why you should have more restrictions or less restrictions or what kind of solutions there might be. So I think that's going to be really interesting. You know, it's great that they're doing that and they took seriously all the comments that they received. There were a lot of comments, too. It was an extremely commented upon proposal, if I remember right. It was something like 38,000 comments were submitted to DEA's original proposal and they changed their mind. And it was, it's pretty impressive on their part to be that responsive and realize this is complicated and people know it's complicated, but at the same time, there's value in facilitating access to telehealth and to the care people need, which includes the medications that they need as a result of, you know, whatever treatment they're going to have that's effective for them. I know that so much of this conversation around controlled substances and around the reticence to prescribe without the in-person appointments, 
centers around substance use disorder. And I think a lot of this conversation just has to keep that in mind. But at the same time, a lot of the treatment, effective treatments like the medication assisted treatment and stuff for substance use disorder also includes that controlled substances. So it's just so complicated when we look at it, because it's like, here are our advantages and disadvantages. And there are just so many. (laughs) There are. And I mean, and the goal of preventing theft and diversion is a good goal. Like that's obviously important. It's understandable. It's understandable. It's, you know, that's also critical to the integrity of the healthcare system, right? And public safety. And I think part of the challenge is DEA is primarily a law enforcement agency. They are not a provider. And patient safety, patient care is not part of, you know, their mandate. That's not in the Controlled Substances Act. It's all about making sure the specific drugs from importation of the API that's part of the medication to disposal, you know, when it's left over in somebody's cabinet. Manufactured every single stop along the way is controlled and prevented from being distributed or sold or ingested or stolen or whatever in some way that's inappropriate or prohibited. It's a legitimate thing to worry about and it's got to be addressed and taken seriously. But at the same time, there are a lot of chronic conditions that are treated with controlled substances. All controlled substances are subject to substance abuse risk, you know, and so I think there may be some solutions there, you know, that people may be able to come up with that could alleviate this issue in in a responsible way. Yeah, I am very curious to see what decision is made uh, by the DEA. And I I do like that you bring up that they are not an organization that's thinking about patient care. They're they're a law enforcement organization. And so I think that's where we see some of that disconnect between what is most effective and what makes sense on a practical level. Absolutely. And from the provider and patient perspective, when you think about the regulatory boards, the medical boards, the pharmacy boards, they're very um, patient focused. Right. And and provider regulation focused with an eye toward patient safety and effectiveness and all these things. But if you have a lot of patients who can't get their medication because it's a controlled substance, that's not really part of the DEA's mandate. And I'm not saying the DEA doesn't care, but when you look at the law and what's what they're directed to do and focus on, that's not in there. Yeah, there's it's a it's a complicated topic for sure. <laughs> it is. It really is. We could stay on that for like an hour probably. Oh, oh, there's, I guarantee. Yeah. There are also state controlled substance laws and they have different additional requirements than the DEA. So, you know, that just adds a different layers. So the DEA makes the rules and then at the federal level and then states can make rules that are more stringent than the DEA. They can't be less restrictive than the DEA. So Whatever DEA proposes related to telehealth prescribing, there's going to be a subsequent activity at the state level while the states try to figure out, do we want to follow what DEA did? Do we have to? Do we want to be stricter? What Mm -hmm. are we going to do? Right. So there's going to be a flurry of activity following out from that at the state level around controls. DEA's action will be step in the process, but it won't be the final part. That's going to be fun to deal with for legal professionals such as yourself, I'm sure. And the providers trying to figure out what they're supposed to do. Those poor providers, they're just trying to provide care, but they have to jump through all these hoops as well. I know. I try to do what I can to make things easier for them. Yeah, it's such a complicated landscape. So 
we've we've said it a dozen times in a dozen different ways that telehealth it's it's in a transitory period we we don't know what it's going to look like in a year let alone five years or a decade so if you had to guess if you had to make a prediction and i know lawyers aren't in the the habit of that but if, if you had to make a prediction for what the future of telehealth is going to look like in a year five years a decade what what would you say oh that's interesting i know big question too <laughs> And my crystal ball is in the shop. Um, no, oh, shoot. I, I, I wanted my predictions and my lottery numbers. I usually bring my magic eight ball. Um, no. <laughs> so I think ultimately we'll find some equilibrium and it, and mm -hmm. it will probably take time. But right. there will be good ideas that some of the states evolve because basically right now we have experiments going on. Right. You, you change this rule and what happens? You are going to have some bad actors. How do we catch them? Is that enough that we need to tweak the requirements or can somebody else apply this requirement? Right. Like there's going to be, I think, a lot of that sort of iterative process and learning around the country as we try to figure it out. And there are a lot of different perspectives. Right. Like there are healthcare providers and regulators that think prescribing was too loose during the pandemic and telehealth was abused. They'll say that. There are also providers and regulators that say, hey, many people who need care have been going without it. They accessed it during the pandemic and that telehealth access, you know, should not be curtailed because of the fear of bad actors. If we withheld access to healthcare because there might be a bad actor, there would be no healthcare. So, you know, what the ultimate answers are gonna be, I think is very much in flux. But I also like seeing all the different permutations because it's an opportunity for innovation and people to find solutions that work using technology as it continues to advance and figuring out how to address things like provider burnout and, mm -hmm. and shortages and still getting patients the care that they need and managing costs. Like there's, you know, you can just keep piling mm -hmm. on all the requirements, but I, I think there will be an equilibrium eventually once people get their arms around it, but it might take a while. No, for sure. I do think that's something that the pandemic did allow us was the opportunity to try a bunch of different things around telehealth mm -hmm. and figure out what works and we're in the we're in the process of looking at what we did and being like well what worked and what didn't so i i, I definitely agree with that so any potential changes come in that you're excited for related to telehealth i'm excited about a lot of things i mean if we stick with the topic of the dea i'm really hopeful they come up with a good solution you know, they're another group. I don't envy them because whatever they do, there's going to be disappointment. And there will be really a lot of happiness somewhere too, probably, you know, that those things all land differently, depending on your perspective and where you happen to be. But I think some of the solutions that might be, I don't know how realistic they are, but I would think some of them might be removing medications from the controlled substance schedule, especially if they are items that are not narcotic. They are not prone to, you know, an, an addictive disorder or something like that. Like there's a bunch of medications that were originally put on the controlled substance schedule for very good reasons at that time, but times have changed. People have learned more about that drug. Does it still need to be there? So taking a critical eye at the drugs that are actually scheduled and thinking about whether they need to be scheduled, just doing that and moving some medications, especially, you know, schedule four, schedule three drugs, schedule five, maybe schedule three, you might get a little tricky, but schedule five, schedule four, especially like, it, you know, and if they're used for chronic conditions, people need them. Maybe one solution is realistically 
do they actually have to be a scheduled drug and maybe rethink some of those and the strategy there? That might be one way without even changing the telehealth prescribing rule. Think about whether these drugs really have to be there. Another strategy DEA could pursue might be to create a telehealth provider designation. Are you familiar? There used to be, they very recently got rid of it. They had an X number to use when they prescribed Suboxone. Yeah, yeah. So they recently let go of that. But the Ryan Hate Act itself directs DEA to create a telehealth provider registration. They've never done it. Maybe it wasn't clear how to do it. I don't know. But if they could find a way to do that sensibly, removing the requirement to have a physical address in every state where the prescriber is prescribing, that's a big barrier for telehealth providers. Or you end up, you know, with all these extra expenses just to have a physical address there because of the DEA registration requirement. You know, if they made it more of a national telehealth provider registration for people who have an established practice in that, that might go a long way as well toward alleviating some of these problems. So I think there's going to be some good changes there. And I also, something exciting, I just really love seeing the technology evolve. People are so clever and they come with all different kinds of things that are so effective. And, you know, a couple of years ago, I gave a presentation about just technology created to help patients stay on their medications and adherence mm-hmm. and tracking and things. And they're basically different remote patient monitoring tools, pills that report out they've been swallowed, like all kinds of stuff. It's just fascinating. So, yeah. Yeah, I was I was lucky enough to go to the uh, ATA, the American Telehealth Association, their national conference earlier mm-hmm. this year. And some of the things that they talked about and new technology that I saw, I'm like, this is incredible. And I'm so excited that I want it in my home. Well, thank you so much for joining us today and explaining a little bit more about telehealth from the legal perspective. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Danielle. I really enjoyed it too. This was a great um, opportunity and I enjoyed talking with you. Yeah, thanks for coming on. for listening to a virtual view. You can find more information about today's episode in the show notes below. If you would like to support our podcast, please rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform. Do you have any questions or topics you'd like us to discuss? If so, contact us at info at umtrc.org or through the form found in the show notes. Also, we'd like to give a special thanks to our editor, Tristan Yoder. Finally, a special thanks to the Health Resources and Service Administration, also known as HRSA. Our podcast series, A Virtual View, is sponsored in part by HRSA's Telehealth Resource Center program, which is under HRSA's Office of the Administrator and the Office for the Advancement of Telehealth. The content and conclusions of this podcast are those of the UMTRC and should not be construed as the official policy of, or the position of, nor should any endorsements be inferred by HRSA, HHS, or the U.S. government. Thanks for listening and have a great day.